This morning, we're coming to the uh, end, finally, of this, uh, of this section. We've been in here for, I think this is the fifth week. They're going through verses 1 through 17. And we've entitled these verses, uh, Abide in Me and I in You, Lessons on Life in Union with Christ. So in this section, Jesus is teaching his disciples about their identity as those who are in union with him, but also about the fact that they need to be living out this union. Not just they're in union with him, but they're to continue in communion with him. And we've been describing what that looks like, abiding in him and and he in them. And last week we came to this transition in in verse 9 to where Jesus is talking about this process, this relationship of abiding in one another, but this time in terms of love. In order to understand the nature of the relationship you possess with Christ, in order to understand just what it means to abide in Christ and Christ in you, in order to understand your mission as branches, you must understand it in terms of love. And that is what Jesus told us last week and will tell us again this week. The love of disciples and the nature of abiding in Christ's love. And last week we covered only the first four verses here, verses 9 through 11, in which we learned that a life which abides in Christ must be understood in terms of a mutual relationship of love. So these verses taught us about the kind of loving relationship that you as a disciple, possess with Christ. It's a relationship that mirrors Christ's relationship with the Father. Remember that? It's one that's characterized by receiving love and then returning love. So it began with the initial love that you received from Christ, the infinite love that he loved you. As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. And everybody who's experienced that kind of love, John says, loves Christ in return. They cannot not return love to him. And the primary way you respond in love to Christ is by obedience to his commandments. And to such obedience, Jesus says that he responds with more love, more favor, more delight in that disciple. So we have this picture of this growing, maturing relationship of love that disciples enjoy with Christ. And Jesus ended that section by telling us that that is the essence of a joy-filled life. You want a life full of joy? It's found there, in that kind of a relationship of love with Christ. But now this morning we come to the final verses, verses 12 through 17. And in these verses, Jesus is now going to practically explain what it looks like to abide in Christ and to abide in his love. I love John because he always explains very quickly what he meant by what he said. That's what we get here. Jesus tells us in these verses that a life which abides in Christ must be understood in terms of obedience to the supreme law of love. So he's zooming in now to explain what is at the heart of his commandments. So look back at verse 10, John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. What are your commandments, Jesus? Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. 
as I have loved you. These verses begin and end with an identification of Christ's central command, which is the command to love one another. Notice how it begins in verse 12, ends in verse 17. So get a sandwich here. This is what Christ is after. That you keep the central commandment, which is the commandment to love one another. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So Jesus is after in these verses. This is the central part of his command to you. He wants to define that for you and motivate you to keep it. So look at verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. So Christ's commandment is that disciples who have received his love demonstrate their love to him by becoming imitators of his love and conduits of his love toward other disciples. You see that? Just as Christ was so loved by the Father that he became a channel of the Father's love to you, so you have been so loved by Christ so that you would become a channel of that same love towards one another. And there are two parts to this commandment. Let's look at them quickly. First, this love is to be directed primarily toward one another. You see that? This is my commandment that you love one another. That is, other disciples. It doesn't mean we don't show love to unbelievers. We obviously should. We obviously do. It just means that those who've experienced the love of Christ have been brought into a community with others who have also been so loved by Christ. And that is where your primary responsibility lies. Christ's disciples, the church, is to be identified by the same love that created it. So just think what a contradiction it would be for the church to have been created by the infinite love of Christ and yet be empty of love towards one another. What hypocrisy. What a denial of the reality of Christ's love, of the power of Christ's love. And that's Jesus' point. Those who've been so loved by him are obligated to love one another. In fact, it's the most natural byproduct of having been loved by Christ. So love is to be directed primarily toward other disciples. This new community you've been brought into is to be defined by love. Second, this love is to be in imitation of Christ's infinite self-sacrificing love. Look what he says. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Well, how has Jesus loved you? He's going to explain that in the rest of our passage, but we've already seen several ways, haven't we? Look back at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The measure of Christ's love is the infinite love the Father has shown to him. That is the measure of his love for you. And if Christ has loved you to that extent, there can be no limits on your love for one another. You see? 
Just as his love flowed from the inexhaustible springs of the Father's love to him, your love flows from the inexhaustible springs of Christ's love for you. It's limitless. It ought to be. Look back at chapter 13. We've already seen another way how Christ has loved us. John 13, 13 is the foot washing of the disciples. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. The foot washing in this context is a picture of what Christ was about to accomplish on the cross. He's the greatest, and he's condescending to the lowest level of a slave out of love for his disciples to meet their fundamental need. And he's telling his disciples that central to all of his commandments is that they should imitate his love as they humbly deny themselves, die to self-interest in the form of loving one another. So let's put all these pieces together quickly. As a disciple, you are to abide in Christ's love. You're to remain in a conscious stream and experience of Christ's love and favor to you. And you do that by keeping his commandments, responding to his love to you in the form of obedience. And Jesus says here that you do that in the form of loving other disciples as Christ has loved you. That's how you practically abide in Christ's love. It's as you become a conduit of Christ's love toward one another. It's as you're nourished by Christ's love to you, as you know it, think about it, grow in your understanding of it. And then that same love flows from you to one another. And when you live like that, you abide in his love. Christ responds with delight and affection and love for you because you look just like him, right? So before we move on, I just want to exhort us to see that this is the primary evidence that you love Christ, that you have experienced his love for you. You obey him, especially you love one another with self-denial. So using that standard, how are you doing? According to Jesus, the measure of our love to Christ is the extent to which we pour our lives out for one another. So using that commandment alone, how much do you love Jesus? Is there a limit to how much love you'll show a fellow church member? Maybe one who has hurt you? Do you perceive yourself as above certain forms of service? Do you spend your time thinking about how others are loving or not loving me? Or are you focused on pouring out the same love you've received from Christ? I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning because I have been loved by many of you and I see you loving one another. So this morning the exhortation is, let's abound more and more. Praise God for his work of grace in your life. But it's also to call us to see failure because there's a lot of failure here in my life. And we must see that the core issue is not simply that I don't love one another. 
The core issue is that I do not love Christ. And I don't love Christ because I have either forgotten his great love to me, or I've never experienced it to begin with. So that's the identity of Christ's central commandment, the primary way you abide in Christ. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He again unpacks it for you. What does it mean that he's loved you? If all that wasn't enough, he goes on to unpack the nature of his love for you. He wants to motivate you and shape the way you're going to love one another. And that brings us to verses 13 to 16, an exposition of the greatness of Christ's love. So how has Christ loved you specifically? Well, Jesus gives us two ways in these verses. First, he tells us about his loving acts for his friends. Look at verse 13. Greater love is knowing this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves or servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. He repeats friends three times in these verses to hold them all together. He's demonstrated love to you by his acts to you as his friends. Now, what does that mean? Let's look at it a little bit closer. In verses 13 to 14, he gives us the supreme demonstration of Christ's love, dying for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, than that he should lay down his life for his friends. That would have been a general axiom, proverb of the day. Everyone would have known it, affirmed it. We still do in our world. Talk about the military. Greater love, no one has than this. You lay your life down for another. Jesus says that there's not a greater expression of love a more spectacular, a more vivid display of love than that a person should lay his life down for his friend. It's a kind of love which is the most costly. It's the most breathtaking. It's the grandest display of the nature of true love. And that's the way Christ has loved his own. The eternal, infinite love of Christ reached its utmost expression in his death, which was death for his friends. Laying one's life down certainly means, obviously means death. Um, And Jesus says this is the greatest manifestation of true love because it doesn't stop short of anything other than what is most precious to a person, right? Your own life. There's nothing more valuable you could give. Nothing more you could give to another. Nothing more valuable than your own life. And Jesus has already told us that in his cross, he would be laying his life down in death for his friends. In the place of his disciples. Instead of his sheep. It implies his substitution. You see that? Look back at John 10 here. 
Verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, in the place of the sheep. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. In other words, the supreme demonstration of Christ's love was his voluntary death. He did it of his own accord, laying down his life in your place so that you wouldn't die, so that you wouldn't be judged, so that the wrath of God looming over you might fall on him instead of you, so that you might have eternal life. And the only way, the only reason he would do such a thing is because he loved you. It's the only explanation. It's the grandest display of his love. He loved his disciples. He loved you to this extent. No greater expression possible. He could not have expressed his love in a greater way. So before we move on, I want to point something out in our our text that might seem like a contradiction to uh, something we see in other parts of Scripture. Um. It says that Jesus laid down his life for his friends. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit lines things up that when I'm preaching here last week and this week lines up incredibly well with what Pastor Farrell is preaching in Romans 5, isn't it? But Romans 5, 8 says what? God demonstrates his love for us and that we were still sinners, enemies. Christ died for us, not friends. Certainly that sounds like a grander display of love, right? I think it's very important that we don't confuse these two contexts between John and Romans. I don't think Jesus or John would deny that in a sense he died for his enemies and for sinners. He died for the world, the rebellious world. But the context of our passage, Jesus is speaking with who? He's speaking with his beloved disciples. Those who know him and trust him and love him and and who he loves And the point he's making here is that he's loved them all through his ministry as his chosen disciples, but he's now going to love them to the end, to the utmost degree. It's exactly how chapter 13 began. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. That's what is being emphasized. So who are Jesus' friends? He tells us, look at verse 14. He lays down his life for his friends. Who are they? Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. They're those who obey Christ. That is, true disciples. People we've seen all through this chapter. It's obvious their obedience does not bring them into relationship with Christ. It's not what he's saying. Their obedience isn't what makes them disciples. It's the evidence. It's what characterizes their relationship with Christ. Simply put, Christ died for true disciples disciples. His death does not count for everybody in the same way. He died for his sheep. He died for those who can truly be called his friends, for his true disciples. That's what he's telling us in our passage. He loved his own true disciples. You, if you're a true disciple in the greatest way imaginable. And if this is the extent to which Christ went in his love for us, then 
it behooves us to love one another in the same way, by laying down our lives for one another, giving up what is most precious to us for the good of one another. Listen to 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. How should we respond? We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So let me try to apply this to us quickly. Give you some implications. Number one, the love which Christ demands from his people is a love which imitates his supreme love. It's a love which dies for others. And it does this in very practical ways. John knows how easily we like to wiggle our our way out of these kind of demands. He knows that we're able to feel confident and, and comfortable and content with simply affirming the truth with our mouths. All of us in this room would nod our heads, yes, I agree with what Jesus just said. And yet our actions are so slow to follow. Listen to what John says next in in that passage in John 3. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Is that possible? Little children, let us not love in word or talk what we're so tempted to do, but in deed and in truth. So let me ask you, is that the kind of love that characterizes your love for the body? Practical, very practical ways of self-denial for one another. Or does your love only go forward when there's something in it for you? Do you willingly, gladly lay down your time, your convenience, your home, your possessions, your agenda for the good of one another? If so, where? Where specifically can you point to in your life? Are you even aware of the needs of others? Are you afraid to get too close so that you don't have to know what those needs are and then feel responsible? I think we often overlook small practical ways. We hear this and we think, man, it needs to be some grand, massive, glorious way of love but we neglect the multitude of small ways to love one another. And the thing is, is none of us lives day to day in those grand spectacular moments. They come once in a while, but you live day to day in the small mundane. And that is where this love is to come out in practical everyday ways to one another. Not just sitting around waiting for those firework moments. And can I just say that this love is to begin in our homes. So spouses, to the extent that you're married to a true disciple, you're married to a one another, right? So it's to characterize our love for our spouses. Does this kind of self-sacrifice and death to self-interest define your relationship with your spouse? Do you look for practical ways to die to self? for the good of your husband or wife. So that's the kind of love that Christ demands from his people. Number two, be identifying what those things are which are hindering you from loving like this. What are they? 
Is there sin undealt with in your life? Unconfessed? Clogging the pipes of the experience of Christ's love? Is there neglect of meditating on the gospel and swimming in the ocean of Christ's love to you? What he's done for you? You're just simply unmindful of this duty? thing I am often. I just don't think about it. You set limits on your love? Do you only love with your words, not practical deeds? What is it? What's hindering you? Ask the Lord to show you. He's the vine dresser. He'll clip those things out because he loves you. What's hindering you from loving like this? So that's his commandment. And that is the demonstration of his love, the model, the motivation for you to love in this way. And why it is obligation for you. But now he moves on to verse 15. Were it not amazing enough that he should die for his friends, he now explains the astonishing thing it is that disciples should be called friends at all. And why that's so significant. And he gives us here the astonishing declaration of Christ's love. Disciples are no longer slaves, but friends. Verse 15. No longer do I call you servants or slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Disciples, you are no longer a slave, but a friend. Now to modern ears, when we hear that, we usually hear the distinction in terms of authority, right? A slave should obey his master, but friends are on an equal level, right? You don't obey a friend. That's not the distinction Jesus is giving here. Jesus is giving commandments which must be obeyed. You're still in subjection to him. The distinction between slaves and friends here has to do with revelation. Jesus says that slaves do not know what their master is doing. Slaves are not given insight into their master's business. They're not brought into his purposes and reasons for doing what he's doing. They're simply commanded and they must obey. They don't ask questions. But friends are quite different, are they? The friend might equally be under authority, but he possesses a relationship of intimacy and companionship and closeness that he's brought into the plans and desires of his Lord. So you know this in the workplace. Your boss, the CEO, tells you to go balance the budget or to go make a presentation for the the project coming up. You don't ask questions, right? You don't try to figure out what his agenda is behind that and or nor do you expect to get his internal plans and, and thoughts. But let's say that the CEO was a longtime family friend, very close to your father. In fact, was like a father to yourself growing up. He knows you well. He calls you into his office and he says, I want you to go balance the budget or I want you to put this presentation together. And let me tell you why. And he starts unfolding you, his, his desires, his plans for the company, how he visions the, the company going forward. That's the distinction. And Jesus says he no longer calls his disciples slaves. In other words, they used to be called slaves, right? Throughout Old Testament history, the covenant people of God were not granted the privilege 
of insight into the fullness of God's saving plan. Oh, they had an accurate Old Testament, and there was much that was revealed to them, but the fullness of God's plan and purposes of redemption and the marvelous way he would carry it out, it had not been revealed to them. But at the cross of Christ, a massive turning point took place in redemptive history. From this point forward, you, disciples, are brought into the full disclosure of God's purposes and plans. All of it. What he's planning in salvation history. Such that they can no longer be called slaves, but the most intimate of friends. In the Old Testament, only two people were called friends of God. Do you know who they were? Abraham. Yes. And? Moses, did I hear that? Moses, Abraham and Moses. Let me give you one example. Exodus 33, 11. You know this verse. Thus the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. The implication is the openness, you see, of revelation. The openness in which God revealed himself to Moses. Not behind a veil as he was to others. Moses was a friend of God, one whom God brought into close fellowship with him. And Jesus tells us now in John 15 that all disciples, not just Moses, but you and me, from this point on, are brought into the intimate fellowship of the triune God and the complete revelation of all of his glory and all of his purposes. Jesus calls his disciples friends because all that I've heard from my father I have made known to you all the comprehensiveness. You hear that? All. Back in John 5, we learned that the father revealed all of his plans to the son so that the son would be his agent to carry them out. Remember, he did that because he loved the son. The father loves the son. He reveals all of his plans to him. And now what do we get here? That same content, everything the father revealed to the son has now been revealed to you. You've been brought into that love of the triune God. That is astounding. And the point Jesus is making here is that is how great he has loved you. He's called you friends. He's brought you into his inner circle. He's brought you into the mind of the triune God. I love how D.A. Carson puts it. We are the friends of God by virtue of the intra-Trinitarian love of God that so worked out in the fullness of time that the plan of redemption conceived in the mind of God in eternity past has exploded into our time, space, history at exactly the right moment. When the time had fully come, as Paul put it, God sent forth his son, Galatians 4.4, And we have been incalculably privileged not only to be saved by Christ's love, but but to be shown it, to be informed about it, and to be led in to the mind of God. Your friends, and he's loved you as friends, and he's loved you so much he's brought you into the love, into the mind of the triune God. And if that were not enough, Remember, he's trying to motivate you to love one another. 
If that were not enough, he gives us a final explanation of his love. His love is not only seen in his acts for his friends, but it's also revealed in his loving choice of his disciples. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus says, you did not choose me. Well, actually, yes, they did choose Jesus. (laughs) In John 1, we read five of the disciples choosing Jesus as their rabbi. They hear John the Baptist. They go after him. They identify him as, as the Messiah. But Jesus' meaning here is that the most fundamental cause of why they are his disciples was not their choice of him. But it was his initial choice of them. It's not owing to anything in them fundamentally, but owing to him. I chose you. True disciples choose Jesus. If you don't, you're not a true disciple. You make a real choice. You repent from your sin. You choose to believe. But Jesus says the reason you do that is because he first chose you. And that is his love for you. It not only responds to you, it's the fundamental reason why you chose Christ and are his disciple and his friend to begin with. The ultimate reason disciples enjoy all the blessings we just talked about is not that they chose Christ, but that Christ chose them. And Jesus is after destroying any cause for boasting. His love not only comes to those who are his disciples, it's the very cause of why they are his disciples. It's almost as if lest the disciples should think that all that Jesus has spoken is owing to them, at least in some part. Well, at least we chose him. Jesus reminds them that he chose them first. Almost as if to prevent the disciples from going down the path of pride, Jesus interjects a humbling statement of grace. How quickly these kind of privileges might puff us up. I'm a friend of God. Undisclosed revelation of God. He died for me. Must be something in me. Jesus reminds us it was not owing to you at all, ultimately, but of his choice of you. That's not all. He did not choose them as an end in itself. He didn't just choose you so that you could have undisclosed insight into the mind of God and that you could be forgiven of your sin and made his people. That's not the end goal. He made you friends and brought you into his revelation in order to send you on mission. Look at the rest of verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. As one whom Jesus has loved and chosen as friends of Jesus, you have been given a commission. Your identity is a friend, but that's not just so you can sit back and say, great, I am the dead end of Christ's love. You have been saved, loved, chosen to be the conduit to be the one through whom he is working out his purposes in the world. You've been commissioned to bear fruit. That is your identity. 
You've been commissioned to be his chosen friend for the purpose of bearing fruit. It's what must define your life as a disciple. He chose you so through your life the love of Christ and the knowledge of Christ would be poured out into the world. What is the fruit here? He says, I've chose you that you should go and bear fruit. I think it certainly includes all those acts of love, right? All of that love you're pouring out. But I think it also includes the salvation of souls that are going to be brought in to this orb of love in the disciples' community. You've been saved to go bear fruit, to love, and to bring more and more people into knowledge of the love of God in Christ. Jesus finishes it with this promise again. This is the third time he speaks of prayer. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You've been sent as Christ's representative, as one in Christ. And you have access to the Father through whom he's working his purposes in the world. So these verses are calling us to abide in the love of Christ. That we would so know the love of Christ. That we would respond to Christ with love to him in the form of loving one another. And as we do that, we'll bear much fruit. Christ will extend his mission, love, bring many souls to himself. And that is the fullness of joy. So abide in me. I and you, lessons on life and union with Christ. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? We have a couple minutes before we are done. Any comments, questions on on these verses or on the whole section in general? <clears throat> yeah, Ethan. Uh, can, you, can you explain more to you? I know you're saying like the word slaves now through like the revelation of the boldness of Christ through his word and everything we become yeah, I say it just, it, it depends on, it's a good question. It depends on the, the sense in what you're talking, right? So in one sense, we're still slaves, right? We're under the authority of Christ. We don't belong to ourselves. Um, so there's not a contradiction between those. Um, still under his authority we're, we're not our own we're bought with a price all those things so we're, we're a slave you are a slave of christ that's a incredible privilege uh, he's your master and lord but in terms of revelation like we said we're not a slave like israel was in the sense that they weren't given the undisclosed fullness of god's plan um, we're, we're friends in the sense that we've been brought in um, now in the new covenant to the full mind of god does that make sense so it's it's not Either or, it's both and. We're, we're both. And, yeah. Good question. Loving and peace, there's an atten- a tendency to be taken advantage of. What is your response in being taken advantage of? Mm. When you're showing this love mm. continuously. Mm. So, difficult, yes. Cutting against our flesh, yes. Jesus was taken advantage of, wasn't he? Um, often. I say we take advantage of Christ when we are loved by him and we don't love him in in return. So as I'm loving somebody, it's not being reciprocated, taken advantage of. It's an opportunity to press into the love of Christ all the more, to know how much he's loved me. And it's an opportunity to model genuine love, right? Like what is love? There's nothing in it for me. Like that, that is the kind of love that Christ has commissioned us to. 
It goes against everything in our nature, right? That's why it has to come from the springs of Christ's love in us. Um, so do people wrong us? Do they take advantage of, of us? They do. Um, but that's the nature of the love. To show it's an opportunity, I guess I would say. It's all those times of it's cutting against my flesh, what I want to do. Own it as an opportunity to show more of the love of Christ, um, to put it on clearer display. Again, impossible unless you have that love coursing through your veins. Um, so, does that answer your question? It's a good question. Yeah, Mike, thank you. Yeah. Thinking along those lines, we've already touched on it, but John 13, 35, I mean, that's hmm. a great thing when those feelings arise and we kill it with Christ's love inside of us. Hmm. Like we're showing evidence that it's been an unmarried given to us that we love other people mm-hmm. that we have love for one another like that's mm-hmm. in those times of doubt in my mind well I have love for the brothers like I, I love this church I love this crew of people mm-hmm. I love even to the extent of sometimes believers and it's shown evidence that I have the love of God that mm-hmm. he, he, he loves me mm-hmm. amen 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 it's a sweet thing Jesus wants you to know that I want you to rejoice in that. You are a true disciple. You grow in it. Any thoughts, questions, comments? All right, it's 1016. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the love of Christ. For those of us who are going to the service, I ask that you would grant the ministry of your spirit to apply the word in our hearts then. I ask that you would cause the word to be applied through your spirit from this text our hearts now that we would grow and abide in the love of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.